The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. or if you have your Bible in paper copy or, or you need to borrow the Pew Bible to Mark chapter 6, uh, verse 14, Mark six fourteen, And we will be looking at what serving God looks like. Uh, it's a very interesting passage as we continue to make our way through the book of Mark. And uh, I just want to say thank you again to Nathan, Nathaniel King, for preaching last week on uh, what it means to know why we believe what we believe and why that's important to us as a church. If you didn't hear that, you can go on Tower View KC or go to our Facebook page, uh, Facebook slash Tower View KC to listen. Uh, brother, thank you for bringing a word and a good uh, application of the word last week as we study those things. Well, you know me, and I like old dead guys uh, as if and, and, uh, because they don't talk back. Their writings talk to you. So I'm going to share with you about one of these old dead guys this morning. And his last name is the first name of our son. Not why we named our son this, but it just happens to be the same last name. This gentleman goes by the name of Charles Simeon. Has anyone ever heard of him before, just out of curiosity? Some people have raised their hands. Charles Simeon was appointed the pastor of, in Cambridge, England, which is the epicenter of a lot of things in that day. And he was delighted. But the people of the church, boy, they sure didn't share his joy. They wanted the other guy that did not get picked. And many of the prominent members of the church opposed the convictions of Charles Simeon to reach the lost with the gospel. In fact, to show their desperation, they locked the pews each week, their pew boxes, during the service and let them empty so they could hear, only hear Simeon preach to stand or sit. We don't do that anymore, but it was kind of pay to play back in the day. You used to have a box that if you rented your pew, some of you would love that. You used to sit in the same seat every week, right? You get to rent your pew, and the people who could afford that locked them so no one could sit to hear his preaching. And eventually God began to work, and through Charles Simeon's ministry, had a powerful influence throughout the nation of England and the world through his efforts to encourage missionary work. People threatened him, people fought him, people said all sorts of despicable things about him. But this is what Charles Simeon said at the end of his uh, days, during the days of opposition. He said, in this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the aisles where people would gather, almost totally forsaken. But I thought if God would only give a double blessing to the church that did attend, there would be on the whole as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing were limited only to half the amount. This comforted me several times, he said, many times, when without such a reflection I would have sunk under my burden. He stayed at that church for 54 years. And do you know during most of that time the pew boxes stayed locked? because he was going to share the gospel. And the church said, we want nothing to do with that. Friends, we're going to be looking at a guy today that is very similar in a lot of ways, although in a shorter amount of time to this, called John the Baptist. We are at the point of Jesus' ministry where opposition is starting to come. They didn't have pew boxes in Jesus' day, but there's a lot of other things that began to fester. 
But opposition, church, let me remind you, does not mean that we are doing things wrong. Often, it is evidence that we are actually doing things biblically right. It, it allows us, if we allow ourselves to be deterred from doing anything unless we have complete approval, as we'll see in the text, it is certain that we will never accomplish anything of real value. And rather than being discouraged by opposition, we should take stock, as Charles Simeon did, as John did, as Jesus and the apostles did, in God's faithfulness to keep us until the very end. Psalm 3, verse 6 says that I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have set themselves against me. Why? Because opposition is a mark of Christian discipleship. But notice, there is going to be a tangled web of sin with this opposition. We're going to get into a story that has everything of the makings of a Hollywood movie, and not one you'd probably send your kids to. This sin that we're going to talk about as John and Jesus are being opposed is like a poisonous spider that spins its fatal web to the death and destructions of others. And any who are pulled into that web are caught in that same death and destruction. Sin is like a poisonous viper that always comes back to bite you with its deadly venom into your system. And you can sow your wild oats and pray for crop failure, but there is a kickback to every kick, isn't there? Playing with sin is like playing with a rattlesnake. It will get all its venom out when it kills you. That's why Romans 3 says the wages of sin is what, church? It is death. And James says when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is what the Christian Bible calls LSD, lust, sin, and death. That is exactly what we are going to see today. Sin always results in death. So what are the rewards of being faithful when you are being opposed? I mean, if sin is all around us and its, it, its consequences are there, what kind of opposition can we expect? And what are the blessings of following King Jesus during such times? Well, if you're here today and you think that you can be a Christian without facing opposition, then you're not following the Christ of the cross. Because above all, opposition is a normal mark of Christian discipleship. And through loss, illness, ac accusation, God is good all the time, isn't he? Amen? He is. Three truths I want to focus on today as we go through this. We're a Baptist church. You've got to have three points, right? We just don't have a potluck afterwards to celebrate, but here it is. Three truths about what serving God looks like in the midst of opposition through the story of John the Baptist. First, you can anticipate that many people will dread you. Ooh, that's not a word you like to throw out, is it? The royals are dreading giving up Eric Hosmer, but this is a much greater dread than that. You can anticipate that many will try to hinder you. And finally, that you can anticipate that many will try to end you, as we know John the Baptist actually did. In Mark 6, everyone is involved in sin in some way. We're going to see Herod, who has to live with the haunting guilt of his sin, the venom of his soul. We're going to see Herodias, the daughter, or the, the wife of Herod, and Sol Salome, who we learn her name from ancient history, are the angels of death. And then there's John the Baptist, who is holy and righteous, who's forced to live with the grim reaper of death, and his own head will be severed and served on a platter at the very end of the story. Makes you anxious for lunch, doesn't it? Sin defiles. Thy sin destroys. And if I can use this in the profitable biblical word, sin damns. Man calls it an accident, but God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder, but God calls it blindness. Man calls sin a defect, but God calls it death. Man calls it chance, God calls it a choice. 
Man calls it an error, but God calls sin in the enmity. Man calls it fascination. God calls it fatality. Man calls sin luxury, but God calls it leprosy. And man calls it a liberty, but God calls it lawlessness. No matter what you call it or make of it, sin will defile, sin will destroy, and sin will damn. Christians, but we live in that until God calls us home. So how do we as Christians, in the face of sin, in the face of opposition to the truth, live out this Christian life? That's what we're going to look at this morning. If you're able to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word, will you join me in reading Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29? I know it's a lengthy statement, so if you're unable to, it's absolutely okay. We understand to be sure. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. And it says, King Herod heard of it. Heard of what? Heard of Jesus sending out the, 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 the disciples and casting out demons and those sorts of things and healing the sick. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work. Brothers said, no, 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 he's Elijah. Another said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod, verse 17, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. For when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet Herod, that is, heard him gladly. Verse 21, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter, that's Salome, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give up, even up to half my kingdom. And she went out to her mother and said, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Verse 25. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his own word. And verse 27 says, and immediately, remember that's Mark's favorite word, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his, as John's body, and laid it in the tomb. Coming to a theater near you is this story right here. This is what we're going to be looking at today. How to serve God. What it looks like in the midst of opposition as you faithfully follow your Lord. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, as we come before and, and look at this very familiar story for many, a story that is just, just, if sin could be any more in a story, Father, I suppose this would be one of them. But Lord, a story that is so grim, but yet shines so brightly, Father, because through an innocent death, your gospel spread all the more. Father, we know that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, as it has been well said in years gone by. So, Father, this morning, as we walk through this week, as we go through, maybe it's not a, a physical persecution, maybe it's a, a verbal, Father, of slander to our faith for living out Christ, or whatever it is we face. Father, help us to be faithful, gracious, humble, and yet bold at the same time in the midst of opposition. Father, thank you for this faithful church. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you.
Well, this is a very, very interesting passage. This is not your PG-rated thing, and I, I do know we have kids in the congregation, so we, we won't go as detailed in some areas, but I want you to know, this is why we preach through the Word of God verse by verse, because this is not something that if you're preaching on a Sunday morning, you're usually just going to pick up and say, wow, let me preach on this one today. It's a pretty tough thing to go through, even though it's very straightforward. What serving God looks like first, I want you to see that you need to anticipate that many people will dread you. Many people will dread you back in verses 14. Friends, there are many lessons that we can learn from this tragic miscarriage of justice, uh, a tragedy that in many ways will foreshadow the tragedy of Jesus coming. It's no doubt that his cousin John, Jesus' cousin, dies, and Jesus will be executed later on. But in both cases, the death of Jesus and the death of John, you have two cowardly men that we know from other passages become friends that are Herod, and that's also Pilate as it comes. When a man or a woman of God is doing the work of God, you can anticipate a variety of responses. Some may praise you for your good works, but Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, he said, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to God the Father who is in heaven. But others will oppose and reject you. Matthew 6, 11 tells us. And still others may fear you, not liking what you have to say or what you have to do, only unable to deny that God is at work in you. And so this is the reaction of a man in Mark 3 who sarcastically refers uh, to himself as King Herod, a title Herod demanded from the locals. But the King Herod of, of Mark 6 and the King Herod was no king at all. In fact, he's a king of a fourth. It's like if you cut a pizza up into four slices, King Herod, this King Herod, has one of those. He was Herod Antipas, this Herod here. He was the father, or the son rather, of Herod the Great, who you may recall, don't you, from the Christmas story. Herod the Great was the one that gave the mass killing out to all the babies in, in Jesus' birth. But this King Herod ruled until about six or seven years, until AD 39, after Jesus had died. And this Herod requested the king, the title of king, from the emperor of Rome, Augustus, and he was soundly turned down. And it's interesting that another Herod, Herod Agrippa, received the title of king. And this ultimately would be his downfall because his wife, Herod's wife, would become jealous and egged on this Herod to request the title again, and that would be it. This man was a wreck. He couldn't decide what he wanted to do. He didn't know who he was. His wife was telling him how to drive his ship as king. And no wonder this wicked politician didn't know what to do with a man like John. Look at verse 16. What does he do with John? He says he is greatly, he feared him. You might even say he was greatly perplexed. What do I do with this random preacher who eats locusts and honey way out in the desert? That's what I want you to see. But how do we respond if we find ourselves in the same mass confusion? Well, we see there in verse 14 first that Herod had heard the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' name now is going like wildfire wherever he goes, and there was a miraculous work that no one could deny. And perhaps Herod called an emergency meeting saying, guys, what do we do? How do we take care of this guy named Herod? What do we do with him? And the options were quickly put on the table. And they named Jesus as their number one culprit. But at this time, it's kind of like one of those movie flashbacks. You ever watch one of those movies where you know what's happened, and then they go back for three-fourths of the movie, and they tell you the backstory, you know what I'm talking about? We already know John's dead. That's not in question. So now when Jesus is starting to rise in fame, they say, well, maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he came back from the dead. 
Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's a prophet of old. But one thing they could not deny were the miracles. The miracles of Jesus had spoken to them. But yet they could not draw any conclusion. They could not bring out anything. But friends, what we have to remember is that Jesus' deeds preceded him. And we need to let our deeds establish our faith. But there is a danger here. And Megan will put this up. But imagine if all we acted right. Imagine if all we did was good deeds. We all recycled. We all ate kale for lunch instead of the pizza we're going to have afterwards. We all helped each other. We all went to church. But we didn't treasure Jesus in our hearts. You know who would love that very, very much? Satan himself. Why? Because if we are simply content with the status quo, if we are simply content with just being who we are and not really challenging with our faith this culture that we live in that is so far away from the biblical truth, then, friends, Satan would love that. But that's not what John did. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what the disciples did. They were allowed their good works to establish the fact that what we are doing is totally different than anything you've ever done. It was evident that even when they were enemies, they could not deny the miracles that were happening. So what happened? Well, popular opinion narrowed down the actions of Jesus to either John, Elijah, or a prophet. And the latter was generally the hell of opinion. He must be a prophet. But not so with Herod. Because Herod tells you here in verse 16 why he believes this man, Jesus, is not the risen John. Look back at verse 16. When, when Herod heard of all this stuff, he said, John whom I beheaded, has been raised. Friends, we can allow our godly deeds to disturb some people. Herod was haunted. Can I use that word in church? He was haunted, and he was absolutely convinced that Jesus was the John the Baptist who he had beheaded. And the miracle, child born to Zacharias and Elizabeth, who was uniquely called from his mother's womb, he believed that this was, in Jesus, the very man. And he was haunted, Herod was. Look, John was a great man of moral fiber. Herod was not. John was a man who loved God and boldly proclaimed his word. Herod was a man who went wherever it, 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 his feelings took him. John denounced sin wherever he saw it and called people to repentance and a radical life. Herod would do neither and ended up murdering. So Herod has this on his conscience. Who is this guy? Where is he coming from? What is he doing? Did John come back and he is starting to, what's my wife going to say? All over again. And friends, what a great reminder to us that as we look at this, we need to anticipate that people are going to dread us if we are walking with Jesus Christ. I use that word dread intentionally. Because the closer you walk with Jesus, the more people know they have to straighten up. Not to get up to some moral code that, that is around uh, old ideals of America, but some biblical code that is what the God wants us to be. And we need not defend ourselves if we walk with God privately or publicly. May our prayer always be that of 1 Peter 2.12, which says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles beautiful, so that they will see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of his visitation. And Megan will put this up on the screen. Megan, I know you can't see it because of all the jumbled text, but friends, we need never to utilize the methods of violence or coercion. Our good works will honor us before men, and our good works will haunt those who oppose us, if not now, then for all eternity.
You ever think of it that way? As you do good in the name of Jesus, you are the dread of some people because of how those works point back to a greater reality. I read a story this week from Pastor Henry Bosch who told a story that was worth listening to about his father. I thought this was interesting. He said, as a schoolboy, I worked with my father during the summer months, and each morning we stopped by to pick up the early edition of the newspaper at a small grocery store. This, this takes you back a few years for those of you who remember these times. One morning when he got to work, my father found that by mistake he had taken two newspapers instead of one. And he first thought of paying the man the extra price the next morning, but after thinking about it for a minute, he said, I better go back with the paper. I don't want the man to think at the store that I'm being dishonest. He got in his car, drove back to the store, and returned the paper. And about a week later, there was someone who stole money from that same grocery store. And when the police pinpointed the time, the grocer remembered two people. And one of them, Pastor Bosch said, was my father. But the grocer immediately dismissed my father as a suspect, saying, that man was honest. He came all the way back here just to return a newspaper he took by mistake. The police focused their investigation on the other man, who soon made a full confession. But Pastor Bosch said, my father's honesty made me a big impression on that non-Christian store owner and on me. His integrity pointed people back to Jesus Friends, I pray that like John, as we walk through these things, even if people mistake our identity, that they can claim this very thing, that there is something different about those people. Why would they do such a thing? And may we share that it is Jesus Christ that is the difference. Amen? It is not a political party. It's not Dr. Phil. Praise the Lord it's not Dr. Phil. It is not whatever else you can have out there. It is the blood of Jesus that transforms the saints to be more like him. But are you ready for the dread that may come with that? John certainly was. And this is what happens secondly. Notice secondly, not only will people dread you as you serve God, but secondly, that they will try to hinder you. Look back at verse 17. It says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, that's, that's his wife, had a grudge against him. Now let the saga begin. The lured events that led to the execution of God's man named John. It was an all too familiar story of power, of sex, of pride, of lust, and revenge. And Herod may have been weak. He may have been paranoid like his father was. But his wife Herodias, on the other hand, was conniving and ruthless. She was the Jezebel of the New Testament. She would stop at nothing to get her way, even if, even if it meant prostituting her own daughter to take the life of God's man, who was, of course, John. Look, the events are lurid, they're seedy, and they're slimy. I'm just going to tell you that, okay? You can combine Jerry Springer, you can combine Jersey Shore, you can combine All My Children, you can combine Modern Family, you can combine The Simpsons, and nothing has the, the, the lick on this first century zoo known as Herod's family, all right? And you know I understand what that is. There was divorce, there was adultery, there was incest, there was drunkenness, there was striptease dancing, and murder characterized all in this story. Not things usually uh, to preach to the church choir on a Sunday morning, right? <laughs> the sin on steroids might be a good way to do this. And in all of this, you see a man who's consumed with Herod with a guilty conscience, but not going to do the right thing. I want you to see that guilt will cause many 
to go against you. Look again at verse 17. Here are the details. Herod Antipas had met his niece, guys. Notice that John said it's the wife of Herod's brother. This is where it gets really weird. Herod Antipas, the Herod in the story, met his niece. His, yes, his niece Herodias, and they weren't good at naming people. There's Herod and Herodias. We get that. And at the time, she was married to his, Herod's half-brother, Herod Philip. You got that? There's Herod Philip. Herod Philip is married to Herodias. Herodias breaks it off with Herod Philip and goes to Herod Antipas, who's in the story. That makes sense. So, are you confused yet? Some of y'all are like, that's my, that's my family tree. I'm just kidding. It's all good. She was married to his half-brother, Herod Philip, and making also that would make her also his sister-in-law. It's really weird. He evidently seduced her, or vice versa, she him. She left her husband, and they married. And this, of course, was a clear act of adultery. There's no bones about it. Herod, Herodias divorced Philip. That's the other Herod's brother that caused trouble. And this also caused trouble because Herod divorced his wife, and they're in Jewish territory, which is conservative of conservatives, and all these divorces are going on, and now you've got the great uncle with the half-niece married and living together. Jerry Springer, Jersey Shore, all my children, and modern family all put together. Add to this, Leviticus 18.16 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And Leviticus 21 says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impure. He, shall ha he has uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they shall be childless. And so you have a sinful situation in which John repeatedly speaks into it. Notice verse 18. John said to him, for John had been saying, not just one time, he tells him over and over and over, Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And this is a prophetic uh, pronouncement that greatly offended Herodias. You don't dare tell me who I can marry, John. That's my business. That's not yours. Get your hand out of my pot, or I'm going to take your hand off. That's basically what she's saying. And it caused problems for the weakling husband with the woman he now shared a bed with. And Herod and John had a good relationship in a sense because Herod had John arrested. Why is that good? Because Herod knew in his heart John was right. You ever know someone like that? You speak the truth. They know the truth. They just don't want to walk in the truth. Verse 20 is amazing. I want you to notice this. Herod feared John. He knew he was righteous. He knew he was holy. So what did he do? He kept him safe. How odd. He kept hearing him. He was greatly perplexed by him. He heard him gladly. Whoa, 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 whoa. Herod, your reaction to John is about as weird as reaction to your family. This guy's just all over the map. It's like jello on a tree, herding cats. Friends, but I want to remind you that our boldness, and you'll see this on the screen, our boldness is directly connected to our sense of security. The Christian is hidden with Christ and God and cannot die. How bold then should we be? John did not fear his head being chopped off. John did not fear the social repercussions. John had no fear of any of that. He boldly confronts the sin. But Herod, in contrast, is feared but he's fascinated with John. Who is this weird guy? It's a strange attraction to his preaching. Still, though, he could not help but listen. He was too weak and sinful to obey his message, but he did not know what to do with John, so his wife, unfortunately, knew exactly what she wanted to do. For Christian, you are secure in Jesus Christ. If you make a stand for Jesus, you may lose everything, truthfully. 
but the God of heaven and earth who has saved you stands right by you. Amen? And that's what we know to be true. And I want you to notice that hatred also caused many to resist him. The disposition of Herodias is succinct and to the point. Notice there in verse, uh, verse 19, she had a grudge against him. Literally, she had it in for him. Verse 20 tells us she wanted to put him to death, but she could not because her weak husband was still in control, and he would not let her take him right away. And it provides an insightful contrast between John the Baptist and Herod Antipas. John is a hair-coated prophet, and Herod is a gorgeously robed ruler. John is austere and simple, while Herod is flamboyant and ornate. John is a prophet without price. Herod is a man who could be bought with any price. John had moral courage, but you might say Herod was a spineless coward. John was a man of the spirit with a clear conscience, and Herod had a troubled conscience as a man of the flesh. Look, Jesus and Pilate will make a similar contrast when he goes before those things. Friends, you'll see on the screen, we need to get used to being hated by those who hated Jesus, but also get used to loving them as well. Isn't that the prayer of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? To pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who love you or who don't love you. Jesus produced mainly three effects. He produced hatred. Jesus did. He produced terror. Or he produced adoration. That's why C.S. Lewis said you can call Jesus three things. He was either a liar. He was speaking out of his lying up his teeth. He was a lunatic. He was mad. Or he's the Lord. But if our culture is the report card of the church... Does Jesus predict an F? Because he says in Luke 21, 17 that you will be hated by all for my sake. But the great news is, friends, no one can hate you more in this life than Jesus was hated on the cross as he bore the wrath for our sin. On the cross, the world's hatred of God and the God's hatred of sin all collapsed on Jesus. Praise the Lord. Amen. You know, I, I, I love World War II history. I don't like this picture I'm going to put up. It's, it's a, of a bug. But sometimes bugs are a good thing. Y'all, some of y'all know the story of Corey Ten Boom. You've heard that name before. She, of course, was a, a Jew who was uh, in prison during the concentration camps of World War II. And while she was there, they were disgusted to dis- discover her barracks were infested with fleas. I saw a grasshopper crawling on the grass yesterday. I said, Lord, bring on spring, but please take away the bugs. We had like zero degrees for 50 days or something like that. Please take away the bugs. But when Corey began to complain... Uh, her sister Betsy insisted that they instead give thanks. And she told her sister 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which says, In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. With some persuasion, Corey finally joined her sister in thanking God for those pesky little fleas. And several months later, the two sisters expressed their surprise that the camp guards had never once entered their barracks during their time of stay at Ravensbrook, one of the concentration camps. And the funny thing was, they were studying the Bible and praying in a big group right there during that whole time. But because of those pesky fleas, they realized that the very fleas which she so despised had actually been God-sent protection from the cruel guards themselves. Friends, when you follow God, many people will try to hinder you, but sometimes it is the most weird thing that God uses to remind you that he is in control. And for John, it was the fact that this man, Herod, was keeping him safe. But even if he lost his head, he was to pray for that difficult person in his life. 
whether he was a Christian or whether he was not, God may have put them in your path to do that exact same thing. Look, you can anticipate people are going to dread you when you follow God. They're going to hinder you. And I want to close with this. People are going to try to idge you, to destroy you. So let's move to Act 3. Are you ready? The curtain has gone up. There's been an intermission. You've gotten your snacks. You're ready for the home stretch. Here we go. And one knows, as you look back at verse 21, that, that it's not going to turn out well for John. We already know that. He dies. Uh, there it is. But it's often attributed to William Shakespeare. But many of you have heard this phrase before. The statement was actually penned by a man named William Congreve in a play called The Morning Bride. The provocative words that hell hath no fury. You know this, don't you? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And we're going to see that right here with Herodias as she goes forward. Though she had not been rejected by John, though she had not been rejected by John as a lover, Herodias had been condemned as a treacherous and adulterous woman. John had called her out, and she was now ready for revenge. How far she was willing to go to do it was truly amazing. It is said that revenge is best served cold. In John's case, it was his head on a platter. Herodias' power over her wimp of a husband beckons us back to Jezebel's influence over weak-kneed Ahab in seeking the death of Elijah and murdering the man Naboth. So here it comes, verse 21, an opportunity presents itself. She has been looking for this. She can't convince her husband to take John's life, but she's going to be the one to end it. It says in verse 21, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for the nobles. I want you to see this, the nobles. These are the, the, the political rulers of the day, the military commanders, the high brass, and then the leading men, the, the leading civilians of the day. And this was a big birthday party. But it's interesting to note that the Jews of the day uh, thought birthday parties were pagan. They didn't, they didn't celebrate them. But Herod didn't care. He had invited the most important people. And no doubt this room was filled with drinking and, and it was rowdy. It was like Westport on any given Saturday night. The time was perfect for Herodias to hatch her plan to get the head of John the Baptist. So look at verse 22. That's how low she goes. Verse 22 says... For when Herodias' daughter, her name is Salome, we get that from Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian. Uh, Salome, her daughter, came in and danced. She pleased Herod and her guests. Look, there's little doubt she was sent in by her mother. Actually, the picture here, many of you have seen the Bible shows that probably don't get this right. Uh, historically, this was probably a, a cornered off area for Herod and his friends alone, the men alone. So there's little doubt that Salome danced in a sensual and seductive manner that greatly appeased, appeased rather the lustful desires of the passions of the room full of unregenerate pagan men. Most likely she was in her teens, maybe 11 to 15 years old. She was the daughter of Herodias and Philip, another one of Herod's brothers. So she was technically her Herod in this story, this Herod, his stepdaughter and his niece. Figure this one out. How low Herodias stooped. She cared more about the head of John the Baptist than she did about the dignity and reputation of her daughter. Can I just take an aside here and say, men, we need to protect John, uh, uh, Brother Dave. Thank you last night at the men's dinner for, for affirming this to us that we are, as men, called to protect our daughters, protect our, our ladies, not that they're unable to protect themselves. That is a God given call of a man to stand up for the purity of our women folk. And she did not do this. Salome danced, pleased Herod and the guest, and in a drunken stupor, he said, Ask whatever you wish, I'll give you even half my kingdom. He could give half his kingdom if he wanted to. 
Look how drunk he was. And parroting the language of Esther, he utters a proverbial saying that he's going to give this. Friends, I want to remind us that the ungodly has used ungodly means to get what she wants, and in God's mysterious providence, he does. And Megan will put this up, but Herod's rash oath cost John the Baptist his life. Beware of quick promises that you make. Read my lips. No more taxes. Said no taxpayer ever. Everything you say, whether you make an oath or not, is said in the presence of Almighty God. As Second Chronicles 18.13 says, God let this my oath ascend from this pulpit. It says, as the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. He made a rash, he made a rash judgment, and what happened is, he gets a head on a platter. Verse 24, so she dances, friends, this is not, I, I, I said I'm not going to do it, this is not your, um, this is not your Sunday afternoon grandchilds go and watch them dance at a school place. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? I don't need to spell that out. I think you understand. And so they're in a room with the men. She dances, and immediately she's a young girl. She doesn't know what to do. What is, the verse says, she goes and gets her who? She gets her mom. And she pleased Herod, and, and, and she runs to her mom. She went out, verse 24. For what should I ask, she asked her mother. And Herodias says, without hesitation the head of John the Baptist. Immediately, with haste, it says in verse 25, and she came in immediately. She didn't, just like daughter and mother, she goes to her mom, Mama, you want John the Baptist? Immediately she shoots back into that room, most likely, with haste, and she goes, and literally, she says, I desire you give me immediately on the platter the head of John the Baptist. Oh, how our kids listen and follow everything that we lead them to do, don't they? Like mother, like daughter. And in verse 26, Herod was sad but spineless. Notice what it says here. It says in verse 26 that he was exceedingly sorry. Oh, but he's got to save face to keep his word to his guest and not break it. Immediately, notice that word, immediately, the executioner, probably one of his bodyguards, the executioner went from Herod to Salome to Herodias. It's done. John is gone. Verse 28, and he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Can you imagine what John the Baptist said? He's in prison. They come and grab him, and he said, what have I done? What have I done to you? What have I done to this? And without immediately, Herod feared displeasing his wife and losing face with men more than he feared God. If you were in Bible study this morning, that's exactly how Agrippa and Festus were in Acts chapter 26 and verse and chapter 27. Pride took him down just like it did Satan and Adam. Herodias feared and hated John because she he was right and she knew it. There's no indication she thought she was wrong. John was a nuisance to her and she wanted him gone now. Friends, sin always comes, as you'll see on the screen, at a high price. It always does. Sin always comes at a high price. It costs God his son. It costs believers joy, power, and peace. And it costs unbelievers the very fires of a literal, eternal hell. Bad things do happen to good people. There was only one bad thing that ever happened to a good person, and he said, Lord, let thy will be done, and took the sacrifice for us. Life is unfair. The righteous do suffer. 
And yes, sometimes good things do happen to bad people, but God, never forget, God sees, God knows. As we close, Matthew 14, 12 through 13 records for us the reaction of Jesus to the death of his cousin. This is what I want you to hear. After all this happened, a parallel account says this. And his disciples came and took, John's disciples took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus knew, didn't he? That the very cousin that he had wasn't sinless as Jesus was, but he knew he did nothing to deserve that death except seek the truth. No doubt it grieved him. No doubt it hurt him. No doubt he wept. And he did not forget. Because in Luke 13, 32 and 33, it says this. He said to them, go and tell that fox, referring to Herod. Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And finally, in Luke 23, 8 and 9, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, it says, for he had long desired to see him. Because he heard about him and was hoping to see a sign done by him, so he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. Friends, I just want to, how do you, it's a tough passage. I will put these out over email for you. For sake of time, just let me read through them. What do we learn from this? How do we apply this? We ought to remember and should be warned against the seductiveness and destructiveness of sin. Shouldn't we? Power is intoxicating. Pride is a dangerous thing. Sex is entertainment. is dangerous and addictive. Sin never leads you in a good direction and always leads you away from God. We live in a culture that wears us down and doesn't take sin seriously, but praise God, we live in a church that does. Friends, I pray our church is a place who takes sin seriously by a place that pray, play, it is a place also where people feel like they can come and say, you know what, I've sinned this week. Would you forgive me? May that be our prayer. We ought to remember, secondly, the gospel is offensive. It causes us to teach us that this life is not about us. We're not at the center. God is. And that we will be opposed. This passage also, thirdly, teaches us about the sovereignty of God, that this move of the kingdom and its collapse were all predicted. That God is not shocked that John lost his head. That every struggle we face for the gospel, he knows it all, he plans it all, and we should not be shocked at all. Because God is in control. And finally, there's so much here. Doesn't this make you long for heaven? Amen. Long for a final victory where every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, whether above the earth or below the earth, that he is Lord. Friends, it is coming a day that Jesus returns where all this junk that we have here is forever gone. I look forward to the day when I don't have to have one second without a passing sin go through my head. I can just think, thank God, the Lamb of God is up there. Through much tragedy, God is going to bring out much glory. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, as we close today, we know that our time in this life is short. We know our time in this world is short. Father, let our days count for eternity by your grace. Father, we know people will dread us. They will hate us. They will try to end us. But I thank you that the gates of hell will never prevail against the very word and the very kingdom that is established by that word, Lord. And that is your kingdom given by the blood of your son. Father, give us wisdom this week as we pray.